but I think often people feel part of the reason they feel paralyzed is one, they feel like they have so many choices. It's like too many flavors of ice cream at the ice cream shop, but they also forget this isn't the only time I get to order ice cream. I'm going to get to order ice cream again, you know, in a few months or next year. Wait, what do you mean it's over? Hello? How can I help? Hey guys, welcome back to Party Lover Podcast. I'm Liz. And I'm Ashley. And we might sound more excited than normal, but this is a huge episode for us, and we've been waiting months to share it with you guys. Seriously, months. Literally months. I think August, maybe, is when we, like, put this on the calendar. So when we sealed the deal. Yeah, we were like, well, we're locked in for the podcast until at least March at that point. <laughs> yeah, that's what we said. We're like, I guess we have to go until March. And the thing that's crazy now that I like look back and I'm like, wow, obviously we're going till like that wasn't very hard, you know? So now I'm like, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Like back in August, I'm like, wow, March is really far away. Like thinking back to my August self, like, I was not ready. You know, I needed to be like, <laughs> I need to be where I am now to be in like her presence. I just felt better. Yeah, it was unreal. It was definitely the most nervous I have ever been for an episode ever. Probably more nervous than I've been for, like, an interview for a job. Definitely. But I also felt the most comfortable. Like, once we got into the conversation, I was like, I I could tell her anything. I just wanted to, like, hang out and chat with her. If you guys don't know who it is by the title of the episode and us just raving about her, we have Dr. Meg J joining us today and I don't Not know if you've heard deal. of her book but it's the defining decade and we never talk about it I mean I feel like I don't I don't even know like the defining decade was a pivotal moment in my life like it actually changed the trajectory of my life and I don't even know it was so crazy to think of that Think of, like, when did we read it? Probably a year plus? Like, maybe I read no, it. almost exactly we a year ago. We had the podcast when I read it, and you recommended it to me on the podcast, and then I read it, and we talked about it while I was reading it. So it's, like, so cool to go back and listen to those episodes where I was reading it for the first time, and now we're here. Yeah, I would have never thought I'd get to talk to her. And no way. It was really awesome to just be able to tell her how much of an impact she had in both of our lives and uh and we had podcast life too right we had kind of like an epiphany on the podcast you guys will hear us like really realize this moment uh just to highlight it she was talking about a moment in her life where she decided to switch her major to uh do psychology and I was like wow that's so crazy that like just that little switch like you if you hadn't made that change you wouldn't have changed so many lives and um well, that I was saying that we just realized that, like, wow, if she hadn't done psychology, we wouldn't have read her book, and it wouldn't have had such an impact on our lives and hundreds and thousands or whatever thousands of others um, that read her book as well. So that was very interesting. But yeah, for those of you that don't know, we highly, highly recommend the Defining Decade. The reason we had Dr. Meg Jay on in March is because she actually re-released the book. I think when this comes out, it'll be yesterday, actually, that she re-released the book. The book was made about 10 years ago. It was originally published about 10 years ago. And uh, she's included things like social media in there, because obviously 10 years ago wasn't nearly as relevant as it is today. And that certainly has an impact in all of our 20s. 
and it uh, has updated stats. And really, we we they sent Liz and I the copy uh, early so we could read it and kind of talk to you guys about it. And it is so great. It's nice to have those little bits in there of just updated information. So definitely, we're so excited to share this one with you guys. So let's get into the episode with Dr. Meg J. Okay, guys, we are back and we're here with Dr. Meg J. And if you've been listening to our podcast since the beginning, you know how much the book, The Defining Decade, means to this podcast. So Ashley and I are so excited to welcome Meg to the podcast today. Welcome to Parties Over Podcast. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to hear what fans you are and how you've been talking about the book and that it's made an impact on you. That's why I wrote it. So thanks for having me. We were talking yeah. a little bit before um, you hopped on here just how much it has meant to us. And Ashley had um, told me about it when we first started the podcast and we started reading it together and discussing it over the podcast. And I feel like we took a huge step with wanting to pull guests on here and like learning from other people. And we're both in our 20s and just kind of we took weak ties and we were like, we're going to make weak ties through our podcast. We're going to network this way. And it has just meant a lot to us. And let me ask, or I'm going to assume, but you tell me, I'll bet that's gone more smoothly than you imagined. Like, I'll bet you thought, who would ever come on our podcast, and I don't know anybody, and I'm guessing that you found out that you do know some people, and people will come on. Well, we never thought you would be, we'd be able to get you to come on, so we definitely, full circle moment, we never thought one of the weak ties we would make would be you, so that... That is very full circle for us. But uh, we're going to start off a little by just, we always ask our guests what, where they grew up and what they studied in school and things like that. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Um, well, you might hear from my accent, born and raised in South Carolina. Um, however, if you know anyone who's currently from South Carolina, their accents are much stronger than mine because I, I left... Oof, about 35 years ago, so it's been a while, um, but that's where I grew up for college. Y'all might find this interesting for people out there who feel like, my route isn't straight. Um, mine wasn't either. I went to three different universities, um, sort of doing it better each time that I, I went somewhere new, um, and was always really into school. School, to a certain extent, my grandparents were educators. My grandmother was a teacher back before grandmothers were even working you know, to a certain extent. So I just grew up, you know, kind of surrounded by school. So it's interesting that I've gone, you know, obviously was in school growing up and then I went to college. And then after college, I taught at Outward Bound, which is experiential education. And then I went to grad school and now I'm at UVA. So I really can't function outside of a school setting. <laughs> and I still like the, to me, a year still spans from September to May. That's a year for me uh, instead of the the January calendar. But we talk about that a lot in the podcast, too, is when we got out of school, we're like, what do you mean there's no winter break? Like, we just have Christmas, and then we go to work the day after Christmas? Like, we couldn't wrap our heads around it. Right. And there's I, not really, like, a timeline for anything. You're never like, oh, I just have four more months of this. It's just like, oh, I just have the rest of my life now. 
Yes. And that's actually, I mean, I may be getting ahead of us here on the podcast, but to me, that's actually a huge cognitive shift for 20 somethings that understandably in their whole life before graduation, they've thought in semester sized chunks and you make choices, but then you get to remake them, you know, 17 weeks later in terms of what are my classes and what are my teachers and what are my hours? Um, but then you go into the workforce and you feel like, you know, you're thinking in much longer chunks and that can be really intimidating. Yeah, that was definitely tough for our transition. So it is funny that you mentioned that. So I know you had discussed that you went to a few different universities. Uh, what did you study and, and what was your experience like in school? Did you, enjoy, I feel like we asked that question also just for some context. We know a lot of people they view school as maybe they work full time and they do college part, you know, part time or college is really a big part of their identity. That's right. kind of where that context comes in. You know, I started out, I did my first couple of years at Vanderbilt in Nashville and that was good. I didn't love it for, I mean, reasons I won't bore you with and probably aren't even relevant now, but it just wasn't, it didn't really click for me for a very long time. And so I left after a couple of years and actually went out to University of Colorado and thought I just need a change of scenery. I actually worked for a while and then went back to school at, at uh, UC Boulder. Um, and then where I really wanted to go all along was University of Virginia. So I applied there thinking, well, if I get in, maybe I'll go. But I was quite happy at, at Boulder and could have stayed there. Um, it's actually a really excellent school and they have a lot of professors there could really work or live anywhere, but they wanna be in Boulder. So you have a lot of really, really smart people who were choosing quality of life over status and which was something that really resonated with me. So I was very happy at Boulder, um, but I did get into UVA and it had been a bit of a I think growing up in the South, I'd always felt like UVA would be a great place to wind up. So I couldn't really pass it up. So I went to UVA and um, and really did well there. I mean, by that time, this was my third university. I'd, you know, I'd done the parties. I'd done the throwing Frisbee instead of going to class. I'd done all that and um, was really getting into school properly, which was you know, UVA is a great place to do that. It's a great institution. And that was where it's funny. I had no intention of majoring in psychology until one day I realized I loved all my psychology classes. And I had a bit of a aha moment of, well, if you love all your psychology classes, maybe you should major in psychology and be a psychologist. Um, so in a way, college for me functioned as it's quote supposed to is that it was a period of exploration for me. I tried different places. I tried different subjects and I really figured out what I was good at and what I enjoyed and just said, that's what I'll do then. And, you know, people definitely said, Oh, you know, you'll never make any money as a psychologist. It's such a hard road. You don't want to do that. I felt like I would be most successful at what I did best and what I enjoyed. And that has been true for me. Not trying to be dramatic here, but it is very ironic to think that you, if you hadn't done what you did and as in going into psychology and listen to those people, you wouldn't have been able to affect so many people like, uh, like us. I'm just thinking, I'm like, wow, this is so crazy to think that such a little change in one person's life, like a different major could 
you'd never know the people down the line that you may not have been able to touch. So that's really interesting to think about. It, well, it is. And that's what's so neat about people in college or in their 20s is that they make what are seemingly small decisions that can end up um, being quite important down the line of that. I mean, I appreciate hearing that you feel like you're glad I did what I did, that I've done a lot of good in the world. And I mean, I, the defining decade had a bigger impact than I ever dreamed. And even still, when I hear people, it's been, you know, 10 years since the first edition came out. And even still, when I hear people say what an impact it had, it's, it's still sort of hard to believe, but it's so wonderful to hear. There's definitely always new 20-somethings to come in and kind of discover it and make it live on. And we're really excited for the new issue to come out. Um, I wanted to ask, once you got through all of your schooling, were you feeling any kind of post-grad blues after? Like, what were your experience like in your 20s? Well, I'm a Gen Xer, which means that my 20s actually looked a lot like yours, minus the technology. (laughs) So in a way, they looked a lot different, but, you know, from a phone perspective, they looked different. But, you know, it was pretty standard for Gen Xers to, you know, I mean, people were already settling down later and getting married later and having, you know, quote, the real jobs later. And so I definitely experienced that kind of openness for better and for worse. You know, I enjoyed a lot about my 20s and I, my first job out of UBA was as an outward bound instructor, um, which was a great job for my 20s because I got to travel, but it also developed a lot within me that it, you know, really helped me a lot in terms of becoming a leader and being independent and hardworking and persevering and was a good piece of identity capital. So I think in a way, I, I knew that was maybe not the most ambitious job that I could have found, but certainly one that had capital, um, even though I didn't know those terms at the time, but I knew it was a a job that would help me later on and help me in the moment and something that also, you know, felt good to me in the moment. But that said, I mean, I was living with a lot of the uncertainty that millennials and Gen Zers are living with in terms of, you know, when sort of those big decisions or the big settling down moments would happen, they were way off in the future for me. And that means you wake up every day with a lot of uncertainty and you feel like a lot of open time, which is very unsettling. I remember thinking every year when Outward Bound would give me a new schedule for the year, so relieved that I I had a year that was organized, you know. Okay, so this year has structure. And then, you know, at the end of that year, there was all this openness in front of me of, do I do, do I do this again? Or do I figure out the next thing? I feel like we always refer to it as like being paralyzed by opportunity. And sometimes like when you get out of college, it's just like so overwhelming, which it's such a, you know, it's a very privileged thing to have is to be overwhelmed by opportunity, but so many choices that I feel like, and you think that they're always necessarily like, the big, like you have to, if you get it wrong, it's, it's, you know, really detrimental. So that's something we discuss a lot on the podcast is just being overwhelmed by all the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that's come up a fair bit, maybe because of the defining decade, people will say, but you said what I do in my twenties is really important. So what if I make the wrong decision? And then, you know, I've messed myself up for life. The nice thing about 
what I'm saying in the book is that you're going to make a lot of decisions in your 20s. So when you decide to take a job, it's your first job, not your last job. Um, and so there's time to make a decision, discover something, you know, are you going in the right direction or the not so right direction and then make a different decision. And so you're going to make a long string of decisions in your life. And, you know, it's really about just getting started on making them and, you know, one good decision leads to another and one not so great decision leads to a better decision next time but I think often people feel part of the reason they feel paralyzed is one they feel like they have so many choices it's like too many flavors of ice cream at the ice cream shop but they also forget this isn't the only time I get to order ice cream I'm going to get to order ice cream again you know in a few months or next year just make a decision and see what you find out yeah that I feel like is we've kind of a part of it I think we've talked about on here too is like each decision we'll talk about this later on but each decision adds to your story so it's not the end of the world if it's a wrong one it's just a part of your story and you'll have a something to talk about in an an interview or something along those lines so uh, we did want to ask when did you start to we know you focused on 20 somethings in your career and when did you start to decide you wanted to focus on that age group and how did that come about? Yeah, that's a great example of how you don't know everything when you make a decision. So you go based on what I know so far. So what I figured out in college is, hey, I love my psychology classes and let me see if I can get somewhere with this. And so I took a job that was, like I said, it was sort of in the psychology field, but also adventure and travel and and really self-development. I mean, I had a lot of developing to do, and that was a good place to do that, was at Outward Bound. Um, Then I thought, well, I'll see if I can get into grad school, which I did, and I went to UC Berkeley, and I had no intention, nor had I ever, well, I don't really think people before, really before me, you know, would have said they specialize in 20-somethings, but I'd never even thought of anything like that. I figured I might work with kids, you know, maybe because I was feeling somewhat like a kid myself, and uh, so I didn't know what I wanted to do with psychology. I just knew I wanted to get into grad school and figure it out, sort of how I'd figured it out in college. So in grad school, I discovered there's a field called adult development, which of course I'd never heard of, um, because like most people, I thought, well, I thought adults are already developed. What is that? But if you look at a 20-year-old and you look at a hundred, a uh, hundred-year-old, everything that happens between 20 and 100 is adult development. So actually, a lot goes on there. Um, so I sort of discovered this field, and then as part of my training, I was working with different age groups. So I did work with kids, I worked with college students, people in their 20s, people in their 40s, people in their 60s, and I discovered that I loved working with college students and 20-somethings, and I was actually teaching a lot at Cal also, so I had a lot of college students, you know, as in my classroom. And I just, the experience of working with them and how fast they learned and how helpable and hungry and eager they were and what a difficult period of time it was, it just really, it resonated with me as a time where you could do a lot of good in a short period of time. And meanwhile, I was learning, you know, what was pretty recent research about some of the sweet spot, you know, developmental things that are happening in your 20s of your brain is changing and you're getting that first job and you're 
you know, believe it or not, somewhere in the next 10 years or so might pick your partner and, you know, figure out where you're going to live. And I realized, you know, so much that's foundational is happening in our 20s and it's really difficult and more uncertain than ever. And people need help with this. But I wouldn't say that, even though adult development was already a field, specializing in people in their 20s was not something that really people did. Maybe they specialized in college students, um, but even still, people email me every day and say, where can I find a therapist who specializes in the 20s? And, you know, there aren't that many people who really have zeroed in on that as a developmental sweet spot. When you started kind of specializing in that field, did you start to notice kind of a trend on what the 20-somethings were saying, like if they were all like nervous about settling down or all talking about the different kind of pressures of the 20s? Yeah, I definitely did. I, I mean, that was how the defining decade came about was that I felt like I had a lot of clients and a lot of, so by this time, you know, I'm going through my degree at Berkeley and then I have a private practice and along the way I'm teaching classes and then after I graduate, I'm teaching. So I'm, you know, both pre and postdoctoral, you know, quite surrounded by 20 somethings. And I noticed they all kept asking me the same questions. And I thought, man, I need to be able to recommend a book they can read because I'm sort of repeating myself based on what I'd learned so far in the field and, you know, the research. And so I go to Barnes and Noble back when people did that (laughs) pre-Amazon and (laughs) pre-pandemic. And I looked at the shelves and there was nothing on the shelves. I mean, maybe there was your girlfriend's guide to your 20s kind of stuff, but nothing that I thought really, you know, did justice to what an important time it was, how people, you know, deserved and really wanted good information, you know, real questions, you know, being posed. So I thought, well, I guess I'll have to write it myself. And when I decided to do that, I won't say the book was easy to write because it was my first book and it wasn't easy, but what I was going to write about was easy because what I wrote about was what I heard over and over and over and over again. So every one of those clients you read about in the defining decade is not necessarily a, a composite as much as you know, a snapshot of a hundred clients, you know, just like that person who's got that same career concern or that same relationship concern that I tried not to write about anybody who, you know, was sort of asking questions or dealing with things that didn't feel quote common that I wanted the book to resonate, you know, far and wide. So, um, so yes, that was when I knew that's actually where my books tend to come from or from things that people are saying in my practice over and over and over. And I think, I bet other people have these questions. Um, let's write a book about it. It is funny that you say like, I had nothing to recommend to them because I feel like now a lot of my friends will write to me like, Oh, I don't, I don't love my first job or how do I find my passion? <laughs> like I would have the answers. And I just started sending them the link to the book and I know Ashley does the same. So all of our friends have read it. So we're like, we have no advice besides you need to read this immediately. We shove it down people's throats for just to be completely honest. <laughs> hey, I mean, who could, who could argue with that? Great advice. <laughs> yes. Um, so with your 10th anniversary this year, So what um, can we expect? I know you are re-releasing the book. Is this, is there any changes? What can we expect from the re-release? 
so I actually I revised it this summer, um, you know, on lockdown mode. And I have to say, I had such a good time doing it. And, you know, I think I resisted the urge to fix what wasn't broken. So I, you know, I knew my editor would be very angry if I rewrote the whole book because it was working quite well as it was. Um, so, you know, I've left a lot intact, um, but kind of big picture, I've pulled up all the stats, um, you know, studies, research, data about employment or cohabitation or having kids or whatever, pulled that up to, you know, 2020, 2021. Um, the, I should say the first edition came out in 2012. So even though the themes haven't, I mean, it sounds like you were reading it and feeling this is me, you know, not feeling like this is yesterday's news. Um, the themes are the same, but the data is, you know, up to date. Um, and then I added some chapters. Uh, when I first wrote The Defining Decade, it was really the first place that people talked and critiqued social media um, because it was, believe it or not, brand new. So um, when I was writing the first edition, I was probably writing it in around 2010. So Facebook was just barely a thing. And I would see in my office, I'd have 20 something clients. They're not on any social media because people really weren't. And it wasn't on your phone yet. So even if you were, it didn't play such a big part in your life. And then I would see them join Facebook and then suddenly our conversations would change. And now we were talking about why is everybody's life better than mine and what's wrong with me and so-and-so has a better job and a better partner and, you know, so I watched that happen and talked about it in the first edition of The Defining Decade. But in the second edition, I'm able to say, hey, look, there's a lot of data that supports what my clients were talking about, that sort of tendency to compare and despair, um, you know, as they look at other people's photos. I mean, of course, now it's Instagram or TikTok, not Facebook, but it's the same. It's just a different, you know, platform. Um, so I talk a lot more about social media because we know a lot more and it has a bigger role than ever in people's lives because it's on your phones. So with my clients, and I talk about this in the book, we really get down to the nitty gritty about exactly how much time they spend on their phones and what they're doing and what sites they're looking at and whether that's working for them. I mean, if you're spending four hours a day on your phone and it's working for you, then I, you know, there's nothing to fix there. But a lot of my clients become more intentional about their screen time and their social media use. And then when they take a harder look at it, they realize, oof, you know, that maybe there's some habits that, you know, could stand to change. Um, not just what they're looking at and how they feel, but also just simply the time spent um, that, you know, people will do a screen time check and come in and show me the data and it's whew, three hours a day on Instagram. That's a lot. Is it working? And, you know, and they say, to be honest, there are other things I'd rather do at that time. And so the challenge is, how do you make that happen? So anyway, there's a lot more about tech and social media. I talk some about online dating, less than you might think for reasons we can talk about in a minute, but I do talk about it. There's a new chapter called 29 Conversations, which is about 29 conversations to have 
I say to have with a partner with an asterisk, the asterisk meaning you should have them with yourself before you go looking for a partner. So you're not just wondering what does my partner want, but you're clear on what do I want before you go out trying to figure out what someone else wants. And I think that's often a step that people don't take. They're so worried about what does their partner want and, you know, can they make that work that they don't ask themselves, well, what is it that I wanted, you know, down the road for myself? And Sorry, can I, does that, do those questions, are they relationship focused when you're asking them yourself yeah. or, okay. Yes. But there are things like, do I think I want to be married one day? And if so, what are the, what's the age I would imagine? And, you know, do I ever think I want to have kids? And am I more of a monogamous person or a polyamorous person? Let's see when I'm, you know, if I, what do I want my family to look like basically in the future? And then as part of that picture, who's going to do the cooking and do I want to work full time if I have kids and all these questions that believe, believe it or not. And believe me as a partner with a person, a person with a partner and children become very important over time. And so, you know, you may not truly be able to answer all the questions when you're 25 or when you're 29, but there's nothing wrong with starting to think about some of those just cueing in your brain some of the things that are going to come up later when you're looking for a partner or a, you know just someone to hang out with now because sometimes what happens is 20-somethings find a good fit for now but it's not really a relationship that can go the distance and that becomes clearly later on when you find out well we didn't really want the same things i feel like asking those questions to yourself and to your partner in advance it could save you a lot of time Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting. I think you have to, so I think asking the questions of yourself is, you know, it's never too early to do that. And then the tricky question becomes, when do I ask my quote partner or somebody I'm, I'm hanging out with? Because you heard it from me now. You know, those pieces that are like 10 questions to ask your partner before marriage, you know, those pieces? Okay, well, when you get to that point, you've already decided. So I don't care what that person says, you're going to do it anyway, because you've already made up your mind. So in the book, I challenge people to think about the questions or to dare to talk about those questions hypothetically with somebody that you're you know, serious about early on. Because once the you know, concept of marriage gains momentum, it's really hard to slow the roll. And so you may not like what you hear, but you keep on going. Whereas, you know, I'm not suggesting that on the third time you hang out with somebody, you give them a quiz <laughs> as much as it's so, I think we have to critique and question why we can spend a year with someone and talk about, hey, what do you want to be for Halloween next year? But not ask, hey, have you ever thought about what kind of partner you want to be or what kind of family you might want to have that that's such a taboo topic. Um, but I think that needs to change. I think so. And I think people are also becoming, hopefully, I mean, I guess not everyone, but more, I don't know. I feel like it's trendy to have those conversations as well in like a good way. You know, the world nice. is changing and I think I get behind. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like it. people are always posting me like, I want to have deep conversations and stuff like that. So I think maybe we'll get there eventually, but I definitely could see that being the biggest struggle is when do I uh, drop this bomb of like, when do you want kids? 
Right. Or just, you know, I'm not asking you to answer if you want to marry me, but right. you know, you, is this something you want? You know, the same way we might ask a partner, Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or right. what do you want to do for work? And I like what you pointed out that I do agree that especially younger millennials, Gen Zers, you know, they're into the courageous conversations. And so think of these as 29 courageous conversations and, and, to realize it might take courage to bring them up earlier than you than you know you might have thought you would. I'm so excited to read it. This sounds great. I had a feeling there would be an update in the technology social media piece because it is such a big part of your 20s and your mental health. So it um, is. It is. Exciting. It's really the point of it, or the you know the take home that I make in the book is the same with living together. It's not whether you do it. It's not whether you use social media. It's not whether you live with someone. It's how you do it. And I think just helping people be more intentional about how they're going about their 20s is really what the book is all about. So, I mean, I I don't imagine that many 20-somethings want to or even are able to live without social media. But it's, so that means it's on you to figure out how is this how am I going to have this in my life? So I think we want to talk about some of the big takeaways that Liz and I had from the book and just those concepts. We've mentioned these words a few times in the episode, and I know that probably everyone listening already knows what they mean since Liz and I talk about them so often. But can you discuss identity capital and weak ties and those two concepts? I can. And, um, you know, those are, for the people who haven't yet read the book, those are the first two chapters after the intro. And they are for a reason, because I felt like for all those people who aren't going to read past page 35, <laughs> this, if you walk away with nothing else from the book, these two little concepts will get you so far in life. And, and they're so valuable in your 20s. So, Identity uh, capital is not my term or my concept, but I'm relaying it to 20-somethings who need to learn about it. It's the idea that there's sort of an old model of your of college or adolescence, your 20s, that you're supposed to have some identity crisis and, you know, be super lost and confused. And then suddenly you're going to know, you know, what you should do forever and always. And if that was ever the way it went, it definitely isn't the way it goes now, that um, maybe a more relevant or modern model is, is the, the identity capital model, that to think about your 20s as a time not to figure out what you're going to do forever and always. As I mentioned, what I ended up doing, I'd never even heard of when I was starting out, you know, so I, I didn't you know, wasn't born, nor did I graduate thinking, I'm going to be a psychologist and specialize in 20-somethings, that this only came about through experience. Um, but along the way, you know, when you're taking a job, thinking, okay, does this job have identity capital for me? Is there something in here who's going to, that's going to add value to who I am, that's going to give me some kind of skill or some sort of foothold where, you know, in my next job, I can go a little bit further than I went before. And so to not think about how you have to have it all figured out in your 20s, and that especially with the pandemic, people are saying, I can't get a good job, I can't get my best job, I can't live my best life. And, you know, that's okay, that just think in terms of identity capital, can you do something, anything that adds value to who you are? So, you know, something that's 
good for you or good for your resume or good for your development or good for you in some way. And then you take that piece of capital and you go get the next job and you, you know, you've invested in yourself and have a little bit more to offer than you, you did before. So if you spent, there's a um, kind of a, a stat that might sound scary, but if you let me unpack it before you have a panic attack, <laughs> it's that your earning, your earning power over your lifetime is actually largely decided in your 20s. And that's because, not because you're going to have your best job or earn your highest salary, but it's because the learning curve that happens in your 20s translates into an earning curve in your 30s and 40s. So I tell 20-somethings, just get out there, gobble up the identity capital, ramp up the learning curve, and all that is going to pay off in your 30s and 40s. But just think about it as one one piece of identity capital at a time. And I think uh, too many 20-somethings don't take stock of what identity capital they have. So another thing in the new edition, I forgot to mention, there's a reader's guide in the back. Because a lot of people were asking, do you have a workbook? Do you have a reader's guide? So I put a reader's guide in the back. For every chapter in the back, there's two questions that help people reflect on, okay, what's the identity capital I already have? Because a lot of 20-somethings have capital that they've never reflected on or they haven't owned. And so to realize you're probably not at zero and, you know, your job in your 20s is just to keep adding to it bit by bit. And that over time, those investments you make in yourself are going to pay off. And I feel like you may not even realize the identity capital you have until you have an opportunity to share. Like I had graduated college and went right into my job and now I switched to a new job and I was like, I don't know how to interview. I don't know what to talk about. Then when I got talking, I'm like, oh, I they were asking me questions to bring things up and now I feel more confident. So I feel like a lot of people just never had the chance to think about it. And the book really makes you think about it. Yeah, exactly. And that's what the reader's guide is really, I mean, these are questions I ask my clients to help them, you know, reflect and own, Oh yeah, I do already have identity capital. I do have, you know, people that I could reach out to, you know, to get to ship to the weak ties that, you know, so many 20-somethings have more than they realize, and they're they're not at zero. They're building on what's often already a good start. I wanted to kind of make a testimony to these, we'll talk about weak ties too, but just these concepts, how they can really, if you really grasp them and read the book and such, it can really have such an impact on your decision-making skills. And I think they really help me sort through like the simplest thing on like going on a trip. It's like, or, you know, in a different COVID world or something, but they, you know, maybe you're like, oh, I, I don't know. I'm kind of busy right now. Like I can't really do a trip or an adventure of some sort. And then you think of like, this will be a, I can now travel better, a story to tell or taking a job that you maybe don't love. And you're like, well, you know what, actually I'm not that great at this skill. So maybe this job will help me. Um, I feel like it's just made me be able to sort out decisions in my head so um, I do really encourage you guys to read the book and, and really understand those concepts but yes so weak ties that has also been a big factor in in part of our part of the podcast <laughs> and such so if you wouldn't mind explaining the concept of weak ties yeah yeah so again so the weak ties is again not my concept um, but one I'm you know wanted 20 somethings to learn about um, it actually comes from a famous paper called The Strength of Weak Ties, and it was really about 
social networks 30 years before Mark Zuckerberg was ever born. <laughs> and um, a professor out at Stanford, oh, his name was Mark Granovitter, he was trying to figure out how people get new jobs. And he looked at a bunch of workers outside of Boston who'd recently changed positions and he asked them, so how'd you get your new job? Where did you, how did you find out about it? Where did you get the leads? And what he found out was that 75% of workers found new jobs through um, people that they saw only rarely or occasionally. They were weak ties. So they didn't find out about their new jobs through their best friends or through their family members, um, but through people that were further out in the social network, hence the name weak ties. But the, na the name of the paper, The Strength of Weak Ties, is about how the value of people we don't know well in some ways is greater than the people that are closest to us. So, I mean, of course, the people that are, you know, our, our best friends, our family, I mean, they're going to give us rides to the airport. We're going to debrief bad jobs over burritos and beer, but they may not bring a lot of new things to our lives. Like, think about it. You already know everything your best friend already knows and thinks. I mean, y'all have probably shared and overshared that, and you're done. There's nothing new there. But when you talk to people, reach out to people, bump into people, and are willing to chat with them, or reach out to an old professor or an old employer or the the friend of your cousin who you heard is in a field that might be relevant to yours, when you're willing to branch out to weak ties and have those conversations, you're more likely to learn new information, to have new perspectives and ideas, to learn about new jobs, learn about new apartments, learn about new people to date. I mean, everything new comes from outside the inner circle. And um, whenever I talk about this, you know, in talks or in conversations, people always, you know, they nod and they think, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, I, I met my partner through this random thing that happened. And, you know, that's how we got together because I left the house that day and was willing to go to an event or a party I wouldn't have normally gone to. Or um, actually, I had a reader email me and said he'd read The Defining Decade and started chatting and maybe because he had weak ties on the brain. He was renting his apart a room in his apartment out through Craigslist, and one of the people who came, they started chatting, and then that person didn't rent the room, but it led to a new job for him. And so this is really happening all around you. And again, it's sort of like identity capital. If you don't slow down and reflect, you don't realize that is actually where new things come from. And I want to be pretty clear that weak ties is not nepotism. So I'm not talking about your dad calls up his best friend and gets you a job you don't deserve. I'm talking about the guy who puts on an ad on Craigslist for a room in an apartment and they start chatting and he says, oh, I know somebody over at whatever. And then you end up reaching out to HR and you, know, you learn about an opportunity that you wouldn't have known otherwise. It's not that you get opportunities you don't deserve. So anyway, um, I would say at every stage I mean, even 30s, 40s, 50s, if people are looking for a new job or they're looking for something new, I mean, I almost always say, go to the weak ties, start working your weak ties. That's almost always where it's going to come from. That's actually a funny story about the Craigslist apartment. That's exactly how I got my job now. I was looking at an apartment and um, the woman said, 
oh, my husband's actually hiring for what you're, what you're in, what you're looking for, because I was moving to a new town. And I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, I'll definitely apply. Ended up not getting the apartment because of it, because I ended up getting the job. So I'm like, that that worked out. <laughs> That's so great. Mm-hmm. See what I mean? I write about, if I write about something in the defining decade about one person, it's happened to 10,000 mm-hmm. people in exactly the same way. And so uh-huh. that's I didn't have the word for it until I read the book and I'm like, wow, that happened to me. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is the way it goes. It's the way things, I mean, it's not, and again, it's not nepotism as much as it is the wisdom of the crowd to put it in like completely different terms that you have a problem you need to solve. I need a new job. I need to figure out how to get out West and you ask more people you're going to be more likely for somebody to have a solution or a lead. And so it's really more of wisdom of the crowd than it is, you know, quote, networking or nepotism. Definitely. And I know that we want to get into kind of just talking about like some of the big challenges in your 20s. Um, But just to kind of put today's world into it, um, a lot of our friends had asked to kind of talk to you about how the pandemic might affect some people in their 20s, not even just finding a job, but kind of just the development that you get in your 20s and how this could slow some people down, if you have any thoughts on that. I'm sorry, I wanted to add to that when we were talking, because we also, we've we've noticed people that maybe moved past, they maybe would have lived in the city a little longer and experimented with just different jobs, and they've kind of, in quotes, grown up a little quicker, or... Um, like we've had a few other people that kind of have gone the opposite. They've gone to live with their parents maybe as opposed to going out. So I just want to add some context. Right. A lot of, of a lot of friends have gotten engaged or starting thinking about kids. And I'm like, I didn't even know that was on your radar. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, we, there were a lot of things we didn't know were on our radar a year ago, huh? Um, yeah. So what I like about what y'all just said is that, I'm actually working on an op-ed right now, and I just wrote a sentence about four hours ago that basically saying, you know, even pandemics don't affect everyone in the same way. And so for some people, they're because of individual differences, life differences, also career differences. I mean, for some people, it's more possible to continue your life or your work on Zoom or to find something that you can get some identity capital on Zoom. And for other people, depending on their field, they feel like, gosh, you know, I've got to go home with mom or dad or my sister or my brother or whatever. So, you know, so pandemics don't affect everyone in the same way. But I think, so like you said, some people are feeling like, hey, wow, you know, I don't have infinite time and infinite opportunities and I need to sort of buckle down and take my life a little more seriously. And other people are feeling like, well, I'd like to do that, but I can't really leave the house. (laughs) And so, you know, I think one, the email I've gotten more than any other, or maybe I would say they fall into two buckets. One is, oh my gosh, I read your book and I really want to do everything you said, but I'm stuck at home. What do I do? You know, is the pandemic going to ruin my trajectory? And for those people and for some pieces that I've written since the pandemic started, you know, I remind people that the defining decade is about how small things you do in your 20s can have a big impact on your life down the line. It's not about, well, if you don't get everything figured out by 30, it's pretty much too late for you. That's definitely not the message of the book, but I think sometimes that's the fear. 
Um, so I remind people that this is a time when you could do something small that you weren't planning on doing because of the pandemic, whether it's read a book you weren't planning to read or take a course online you weren't planning to take or, you know, spend a year with mom and dad and have a realization about yourself or about what kind of family you want you might not have had otherwise. So the pandemic could lead to, to something small, um, a small piece of identity capital or a new week tie connection you make, you know, with all the online time now. So you don't know. I tell people, like, don't jump to the conclusion, don't catastrophize and assume that this is going to be life ruining, career ruining. It doesn't have to be. The small things can still happen this year and they could lead to bigger things down the line. Um, the other email I get a lot is actually people sort of saying, the opposite of what, you know, the, the previous emailers are saying. And that's, you know, if it weren't for this pandemic, I never would have been stuck at home reading your book. And it's had a big impact on the way I'm thinking and on what I want to do the minute the world opens up again. And so, you know, I wouldn't rule out the, the kind of the importance of sometimes life stops you in your tracks. And in that moment, we become more intentional and we have actually had a client say, wow, during the pandemic, I've had such more of a chance to think my own thoughts <laughs> and that she felt like before the pandemic, she's just bombarded by work, life, friends, social media, you know, but all that's really slowed and that she's able to actually think her own thoughts, think about her own life. And that even though maybe this year feels like a setback, she feels like when you know, things really get going again, she'll actually be in a better position to move forward than she was before. And I think for many people that that can be true. I was just going to say, based off what you said, I know you talk a lot about the media saying 30 is the new 20. And probably a lot of people are freaking out about that in the pandemic. But I just like that you said there's still things that you can work on during this and still chipping away at it. And that doesn't mean that you can't do things in your 30s too like life is not over like you can still change your career in your 30s you can still do all these things and and just because you're stuck at home doesn't mean that you can't do anything no I mean I I got these sorts of emails pre-pandemic I would get emails from people who said oh my gosh I'm 29 and I'm half and I just read your book is it too late for me and so they may not have been in a pandemic but they felt like, ugh, you know, in retrospect, I might as well have been in a pandemic for the last nine and a half years. I haven't done any of the stuff yet that you were suggesting that I do. But back to this, you know, a small, you know, the metaphor I use in the defining decade, I used it in my TED talk is actually something an old supervisor of mine used that he said that the reason he liked working with young people is it's like working with planes just after takeoff and that a small course correction early on can make a big difference down the line. So you, you can make a small correction, course correction, direction change, whatever, post pandemic or at 29 and a half or 31 and a half and, you know, have make a big difference in your life down the line. It's never too late. Um, to put together, I mean, lives are long, careers are long, relationships are long. You know, the defining decade is really about just being intentional and kind of getting started on getting the life that you want. So I feel like a concept that I've gathered from the book is that your 20s are really the foundation that you're trying to work on. And I think the message is just to not live them so passively um, mm -hmm. and 
try and be very, like you said, intentional with your time. So I feel like for some people, what are some of the consequences that you could have from living your 20s passively and not thinking about what you might want in your 30s and 40s? I know we've discussed, you know, maybe not saving as much because you're like, oh, I'll buy a house eventually or having kids that's down the line. Um, Can you just touch on that? Yeah, there's a great quote. I It's in the second edition. I, I hadn't come upon it for the first edition, but it says something like not taking care of your future self is a failure of the imagination or something like that. And I think, um, you know, the danger of not maybe getting going uh, or, or imagining your future self and thinking about how can I take care of my future self by, you know, making good choices in my 20s, the danger of that is that your future self eventually becomes your current self. <laughs> and your that self may not be, you know, as happy as they might like. So um, I remember, you know, sort of when the book first came out, you know, the first time around, YOLO was a big, you know, you only live once. YOLO was a big, you know, big meme of the moment, right? And so in talks, I would say, yes, you only live once, but your life is going to go on for a pretty long time, right? And so, you know, as happy as you want to be in your 20s, that that same person is eventually going to be in their 30s, and they're also going to want to be happy. So what can you do now to set yourself up for that? So it doesn't mean you have to have it all done and figured out in your 20s but maybe to have to be beginning those threads of you know where where would I like to be work-wise in 10 years relationship-wise in 10 years fun-wise travel-wise financially you know if if you want to keep traveling when your 20s are over you're going to have to make the money to make that possible or if you're going to want to have time to have the family that you want you're going to have to figure out okay when is that going to happen and how's that going to mesh with my plans for graduate school or job advancement? And so, you know, if you don't sort of think about this and imagine, you know, what you want down the line, then you might get down the line and realize they don't, they don't all fit. Um, There's just not enough room for everything to go, or it's very stressful to try to jam it all in there at once. Maybe more specific, but there's a great metaphor that actually a client told me one time is that she felt like she didn't think about dating or she didn't really take relationships very seriously until suddenly she got married. And she said that in her 20s, you know, dating was like musical chairs and the music was playing and everybody was running around and having fun. And then suddenly in her 30s, it's like the music turned off and everybody started sitting down. And that she felt like in a way maybe she'd sat down in the closest chair to her then really that she had used her 20s to figure out gee what what do I like in a chair which one which one might I like to sit down in um and so I think that's sort of the metaphor for that it can catch up to you that if you don't think about it in advance suddenly life can change and you feel like you're rushing to do what you might wish you had put a little thought more thought into earlier we might have strayed a little bit away from the outline but I really like where it went and there are a lot of new points brought up, and I'm I'm really glad. This was a really good conversation. Excellent. Well, Liz yes. and Ashley, it was a really a pleasure. I, I'm being sincere when I say I never stop being 
um, so surprised and just <laughs> honored and appreciative by what an impact the defining decade has made. It really is just a wonderful thing um, to hear as an author and as a psychologist. I mean, I wrote the book to help people. And so it's just so fantastic to hear that you feel helped and that you're helping other people um, find, their, find their way to it. Well, that's funny. As I was telling you, that small decision that like you may have made to not, you know, I say small, but to not become a psychologist and stuff, we would have never found the book. And then I just had the epiphany of that, like the small decision we would have had to not make the podcast. Some people may have not found the book. <laughs> right. right. So, right. There you go. Good yeah. for you. That's right. I mean, we're all making, you know, decisions that you just don't know. I mean, that's part of what's so hard about your twenties is all the uncertainty, but sort of the beauty of it is, you just don't know. Uh, I mean, and sometimes you can take that in a good way of you don't know whether what you're doing right now, you don't know what it might be leading to for yourself or other people. Um, and just just take heart in that. What we've kind of been pushing recently is the like falling in love with the what if and the some of the fun part is just thinking about it. Like I recently got engaged and I was like, oh, half the fun yeah. was just being well, thank you. I, half the fun was, t you know, dreaming about getting engaged and how exciting that would be that when it was over, I'm like, oh, I'm kind of sad. Like I, the half of the, you know, is, is the excitement of figuring it out. So that has been the message we have been pushing lately, but thank you so much. Very sincerely. This has been a dream come true to have you on. And honestly, I would have never thought that when I was reading the book, I'd get the opportunity to speak with you. So even when we were talking earlier, we were like, in what world would we get to talk to Meg, like, in, like, over Skype for an hour? Like, in what world would that happen? Like, thank God we have the podcast, so we can do this. So my hat's off to you. And it's been a pleasure. We'll keep keep up the great work and good luck in your 20s and beyond. <laughs>